Today's sermon text. Sorry. Sorry. Today's sermon text is from John chapter 13, 17, verse 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that you, they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's join our Lord Jesus in his prayer. Father, 2,000 years ago, our Savior, our King, prayed that your word would go from your Son to those apostles, those first disciples, and be passed down from generation to generation to generation until the whole earth is filled with your glory. And here we are today, on the opposite side of the world from where he prayed this prayer, delighting in your glory. And we ask, God, that you would use these words to continue to answer your son's prayer. That through these words, this church may be unified may be full of your joy, may display your glory in this world, and may be faithful to pass this glory on to future generations. Would you do that through our gathering of ordinary people with our incredible, glorious, extraordinary God? Through Christ, amen. The most effective thing you can do to train up children in your home and send them out faithfully is to have a thriving marriage. A marriage partnership saturated in the gospel gives, gives your kids a picture of everything that Christ offers them. A committed, loving, affectionate marriage between dad and mom provides the foundation for their identity and their purpose. Dad and mom prioritizing marriage gives children stability in the home life and confidence in their identity, a safe place to bring their fears, a culture to learn appropriate affections, and an example to strive for in adulthood. 
A flourishing marriage gives children something bigger than themselves that they can partake in so that they can know that this world and their own lives are not about them. It inspires them to go and multiply a similar home life so that more children can be raised in such grace. Sure, there's a lot of helps that we could use, practical parenting strategies that we could have guidance, be given guidance for. But those things are much less likely to be successful without the priority of joyful, intimate partnership in dad and mom's marriage. And similarly, the most effective thing that Christians can do to train up and send out missionaries to build the church and call people to faithfulness in Jesus is to build a thriving church. A thriving church saturated in the gospel gives its people a weekly picture of everything that God offers them in Christ. A committed, unified, loving church family shared among its members provides the foundation for its members' identity and purpose. It gives the members stability in a community life, confidence in their identity, a safe place to bring your fears, a culture to learn appropriate affections, examples to strive for. A flourishing church gives its members something much, members something much bigger than itself, themselves to partake in, to know that this world and their lives are not all about themselves. It inspires the members, to multiply that community into other neighborhoods where more people can grow up in such grace. Sure, there's a lot of things a church can talk about, practical strategies to discuss greater individual guidance, but those things are much less likely to be successful without the priority of joyful, unified, partnered church life together. And it's this vision for a thriving community of believers that Jesus prays for in our text today. We learned last week that Jesus is on a glory mission for the sake of God's name in this world. And he prayed for the fa- to the Father to accomplish that mission through his disciples. And the focus in last week's part of the prayer was the particular disciples who walked and talked with Jesus here on earth in his lifetime. But now the emphasis shifts a little bit to show us how that mission will multiply beyond those first disciples. Jesus prays, telling them that compelling Christian community is his glory mission strategy. Compelling Christian community is Christ's glory mission strategy. In these few cosmically glorious verses, Jesus will explain how his mission to fill the earth with his glory is accomplished through a compelling Christian community. In verse 20, he lays out just a couple of mission principles reminding us of what he's always intended and how it's always been accomplished. And then the meat of this vision comes in verses 21 to 24 when he gives mission practice. What will it look like for these disciples to put these mission principles to work? Finally, Jesus makes a mission promise in verses 25 and 26, giving us confidence that 
as counterintuitive or foolish as this plan seems to our worldly minds, this is God's glorious and wise plan to accomplish his mission. So let's dive into this amazingly beautiful community vision. We're going to start first with just verse 20 and look at the mission principles that Jesus lays down there. He first says, I do not ask for these things only, these only, these disciples, the first people he prayed for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So we cheated a little bit last week, moving forward, applying last week's prayer to our own lives in this modern world. But to be really fair, that prayer that portion of this prayer was really focused on those disciples who walked and talked with Jesus on earth. He was asking the Father to equip these disciples to keep them faithful, to keep them unified, unstained from the world, but immersed in his word. Yes, these are all good things that we need to learn, we should study, and even apply to our own lives. But strictly speaking, that prayer was for those guys. But here in verse 20, we see a transition from them to every generation of believers to follow. He's expecting that it will multiply. What they have, what Jesus prayed to the Father for them to have, will multiply generationally until the whole earth is filled. He knows that there will be generational faithfulness because this is what he has planned from the beginning to work from one generation to another as we talked about a lot in Sunday school this morning. In Genesis 1, God made Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They would come together, make new people, who would then come together and make more people, who'd come together and make more people, on and on, repeating that process until the whole earth is filled. Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, tells us in chapter 2, verse 15, guys, you kind of missed part of the plan It wasn't just to fill the earth with physical bodies, but to multiply spiritual worshipers. To fill the earth with those who delight in God's glory. Now, we know it didn't quite work out that way. Adam and Eve rebelled. They thought they could do things their own way. They thought they could take some shortcuts. But God promised them that there would be generational redemption one of their children would restore faithfulness to the mission so we could fill the whole earth with worshipers. The promises were always generational, passing faithfulness to your children and your grandchildren and your grandchildren's children. And so God would come and renew the mission through different people making more promises. He promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, his children, his grandchildren, No, even before he had any, and he was 90 years old, he would have children and grandchildren who would fulfill God's promises. And then he made this great nation called Israel. And while they're in in bondage in Egypt, he's promising them that he's going to bring them out and they're going to be used as the people that bring about the redemption promised to Adam and Eve. God kept them faithful. Well, He kept them alive anyway, generation after generation, even getting more specific with King David saying, one of your offspring 
somewhere down the line, further generations is going to bring, sit on the throne and rule over the earth, bringing generational faithfulness. Even today, we're continuing that work that began thousands of years ago. We pray that our kids and our grandkids and subsequent generations will be faithful to God and keep the mission going. And if you're a believer today, it's because great-grandparents moved here praying that their work and their prayers would be answered, that their great-grandkids and that generation would be faithful to God. But you can take those prayers back farther than our grandparents and our great-grandparents. You take them back 1,900 years to Jesus right here before he goes to the cross, praying for generational faithfulness. As he is before his disciples, wrapping up his, his farewell address to them, he is praying that the gospel will go from those disciples in the room with him to more believers in Jerusalem, and then spread out to believers in Rome, and then later spread up to believers in Germany, and then over to believers in England, who would sail across the ocean to believers in New England. And then some crazy people would pray that they would get in a cart and take it halfway across the nation and settle in Minnesota. And some of those crazy people think, Rochester, that's a great place to establish generational faithfulness to Jesus. And now here we are. The fruit of Jesus praying for generational faithfulness. But this generational principle we need to see does not work in Christ simply by blood, passing it on through blood. Just have children, there you go, they're believers but by the word. Jesus says, future generations will believe through their word. See, the old covenant promises were made for those born and brought in or brought into physical Israelite homes, families. But now the new covenant promises are made to those who are spiritually born into the heavenly family of Jesus. And that spiritual birth happens through Christ's word proclaimed in the covenant community of his people. Particularly through the words that were written down in the New Testament by the apostles so that we could know how to follow Jesus since we didn't get to sit under his teaching and listen to him directly. We now bear fruit, multiply, fill the earth by spreading the seed of his word as written by the apostles. That's why the in the early church in Acts chapter 2, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were, the apostles were the ones that had Christ's word that could bring life to their community. It was these words that would give them faith, these words that would help them endure, these words that would help them multiply. Just as God once said in the beginning, let there be light and there was light. Now Jesus is praying that these, this same powerful word would be on display in his disciples so that when they say, repent and believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, people will actually repent and believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
We must speak the word. The mission can't go forward. Faithfulness can't multiply to future generations unless we speak. So that silly proverb that you may have heard, apparently from St. Francis of Assisi, he says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's foolishness. The mission advances. Faithfulness multiplies to the next generation through their words, the words of his people. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 10, how will they call on him in whom they have not heard, believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Generational faithfulness requires preaching the word. But now there are, are particular ways that Jesus prays for this word to be proclaimed. He wants it to be on display that supports, in a way that supports the preaching of the word. He wants his word preached to show, to create a certain kind of fruit, to produce a certain kind of life. And that's what we see him praying for in verses 21 to 24, that these future generations would carry on this mission practice. He prays, he asks the Father that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. A lot of unity going on there. For what purpose? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So now Jesus is praying for future generations. He's praying for you. If you are in Christ, he's praying right now for you. And what does he want to see among these future generations of believers who believe through the word? He prays similarly to what he did for those first disciples and then explains how it's going to be passed on. This word creates new life in people so that they're believe, when they believe, they're drawn into fellowship with the eternal God. They will be unified with each other. He prayed for that, certainly. But how? Because more than unified with one another, that whole community will be held together by the glue of God's unity himself. Don't let the immensity of this prayer pass by quickly. For all eternity... Father, Son, Spirit were enjoyed perfect, loving, joyful community, delighting in God's glory together. God utterly satisfied for all eternity in his own glory, only joy and goodness, no sorrow or pain, only happiness and peace, no conflict or despair. And Jesus is praying that people like us who never got to see him, touch him, hear him, by the power of this word preached to others, will get to be drawn into that eternal fellowship of triune love. That is incredible. 
That's not only what Jesus asks the Father for, but that's why the Father sent him into the world to make that happen. So, and then after that, now, even more simply than the gospel, this word producing unity, now it turns that unified fellowship outward and shows the world, this is what my power does. This is what my gospel accomplishes. It verifies, this unity verifies the truth and power of God's word, which they proclaim, and invites others into the fellowship. This Trinitarian love Jesus accomplished accomplishes for his disciples, has kind of this ebb and flow to it. He has this already existing fellowship of love. And he invites us into it by his own righteous work. And then in us, his love overflows outwards towards our neighbors to let them now come in and join us and be part of the work. And You can't go out into the world and invite them into this fellowship unless it's something you are already a part of, unless it's something that you have deeply and profoundly been satisfied by. Once you experience that love, you you know it's the kind of love that must be shared. So I have to go out and tell somebody about it. Why would I cover it up? It's the best thing in the world. Come and enjoy it with me. Assuming you actually enjoy it together, right? But this is how God did it himself. God's own eternal loving fellowship overflows, shoots past Father, shoots his love even past the Son, creates a whole new world with humanity in it. And even when humanity rebels, God is still delighting in his eternal, loving fellowship forever that overflows more by sustaining a creation that we live in rebellion in. But even more so, he's still got so much love that he keeps overflowing this eternal, loving fellowship by sending his son into the world to redeem it, that we could be brought into that love forever. It's God's own enjoyment of his eternal community of love that motivates his mission. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is just so important to us. It's not just some heady theological things. This is foundational to how we define love and how we go about mission, define our mission. We say that God's self-love is the source of his love for us. But his love is not an excuse for us to be selfish. God is not being selfish when he loves himself. He's not like, he's not one solo mono God like Allah thinking he's so great and everybody needs to bow down to him. God is three in one, always delighting in the other together. There was eternally so much other-focused self-love that it overflowed into creation. So we don't go along with a world that says that we need to learn to love ourselves before we can love others. We don't say, you deserve some me time. You're never going to be able to serve anybody else until you learn to serve yourself. No. Self-focus never produces love. Only a community of love can create life. 
Only by connecting with a godly community will you both have a place to serve others selflessly and also have your own needs taken care of without having to think about them all the time. Now, to have a community like this, though, we have to have something that unifies us, that puts all of us focused in the same direction so that we're not interested in, well, I got this thing to take care of, and I really think this is most important, and I'm going to work on that, and I have these interests, and I like that kind of music. We need something that says, stop looking at all those things right here. Look right here. Jesus says in verse 22, for that purpose, he gave us God's glory. We, we gather together to be enraptured by his dazzling beauty. And it makes us forget all about ourselves and makes us want to give more of ourselves. Just like this God that we are enamored with. He fills us and fills us from this endless fountain of love so we can keep pouring over and over ourselves out to others. This is why Sunday morning is so important. We prioritize it. It helps us focus everything on the work of God in Christ through his spirit working in the word. That's the glory that fills us and unites us so that when we go out, we are on the same mission. We can only accomplish this work when we are unified, totally satisfied in his glory. And Jesus explains in verse 23 what he means by unified. Us in each other and in fellowship with God so profoundly that it's really hard to even tell us apart. If, if you're a theological nerd, you may have heard the word perichoresis. That's a, a word that describes the Trinity where you say there's three, there's one. I keep looking at the three, but it keeps leading me back to the one. Fa I know there's Father, Son, and Spirit, but they're never separated. They're always working together. I can never just identify one by himself. He's always working together for the unified glory of God. Any way you try to define the three, it always leads us back to the one. This is the unity, then, that Jesus wants for us. Different families, different individuals, but we are all so working together, unified on mission for God's glory. People look at us and they, sure, I see parts, but they are one. They are one unit. They have one purpose. And he says, this is a witness to the world of the power of his work. He says, so that the world may no, this is how the world will know God is alive, that Jesus is at work in us when we are unified in his glory. Now, admittedly, that unity that he prays for won't fully be accomplished until all creation is made new. Heaven comes down and unites with earth and all of humanity is in Christ together. We have a lot of work to do until then. We can experience a taste of that unity, but it's going to be so much more grand in the end. And that's what Jesus is praying for in verse 24. What he's really praying for in that moment is when the mission is accomplished and all is unified with God in him. That's the goal of this entire thing. That's the goal of your existence. That's the goal of this church. 
is that these little pockets of unified fellowship for God's glory would multiply and fill the whole earth. It, it seems like he's kind of contradicting himself in verse, from verse 15, where he said, God, don't remove my disciples from this world. And now he's saying, please give them to me. I want them now. But really, he's, he's just trying to keep in mind the greater goal. He's keeping his eyes on the prize, the joy set before him. He's aiming for the whole world to be unified with him and the Father, but sees that there's much work to be done. And he is empowering his disciples to create these little pockets of Christian community that will multiply, beginning, bringing each generation one step closer, one step closer, one generation closer to that glorious day when the whole earth is filled with his glory. And he knows that day is coming. And he promises it in verses 25 and 26. He prays this mission promise. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. As you read this prayer, it's, it's kind of easy to see where Jesus is breaking up his prayer, what he's praying for, how he's changing it, how he's organizing it, by when he inserts the word Father in there. He's not just praying as we often do modern times, uh, when we're try we just throw in the word Father to kind of break up the monotony of our prayer. Father, thank you for just Father, that you are with us, Father, and send us out, Father. We kind of do that as a little tick, but Jesus is being very deliberate with his words, purposeful to let us in on what he's praying, giving us these markers, and he stressed something really important when he adds a title. So back in verse 17, he prayed, Holy Father, emphasizing it is your holiness that is going to keep these disciples faithful when the world's coming at them. And now in verse 25, he calls God righteous father. Now to stress that the guarantee of this mission's success is God's own righteousness. Righteousness means the right order according to the way God organizes the world. The foundation of the mission's success is the right order of God's own nature. The world at times, you've all felt it, looks like it's just in chaos. It's shifting sand all the time. But even still, Jesus says, I know the Father. He doesn't just know about him. My intimate tr Trinitarian love continues with the Father. It is unchanging. They are still unified in this love. God is unchanging despite the constantly shifting world. This love will carry on through it. And Jesus has passed this unchanging love to his disciples. And he says in verse 26 that it will be passed on from them from one generation to another without fail. God's intimate love will be fruitful and multiply. It will create spiritual offspring through Christ's disciples. That's why you believe 2,000 years later. Now, it's especially important to slow down here and ask some questions 
on how God's righteous knowledge of himself is going to accomplish this kind of salvation. When we talk about love, the world has all kinds of ideas of what love is. Our world says, all you need is love, and you can accomplish anything that you set your mind to. In the name of love, we can fix any problem. We can just say, love is love, and that gives us license to do whatever we want. But that's not how God's love works. This intimate knowledge, this love of God is righteous. It does not invite sin into fellowship with him. God's love hates sin. It destroys sin. God's love will punish unrighteousness. God's love protects his fellowship from corruption and sin and so-called love. But that now leaves us in a little bit of a pickle because God can't righteously answer Jesus' prayer to bring us into fellowship with him. How can God answer Jesus' prayer? Bring these unrighteous people into your righteous fellowship. Proverbs 17 verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to God. According to God's own eternal wisdom, it is unrighteous for him to bring sinners into this fellowship. It would be unrighteous for him to answer his son's prayer while also righteous for him to answer his son's prayer. But that's why in the very next chapter, Jesus is going to go to trial and be condemned to die on a cross. It's on the cross that Jesus removes our unrighteousness. He bears our sin on the cross, removing it as far as the east is from the west. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he becomes sin for us so that when we believe in him, we have his righteousness. And now with his righteousness, we can go into God's fellowship forever. The cross is the guarantee of our righteousness, the assurance of our unity, the definition of appropriate affections, the certainty of our mission's success. His death and resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is the gospel. That is the word that will create such communities. It's the word that will multiply these communities. It's the reason Jesus prays to leave you here on earth. He saves you and leaves you here instead of bringing you home with him because he wants you to be part of the mission to fill the whole earth, to pass this word on to the next generation. This world and this life are not about you. You've been saved to be unified with a church family that proclaims and displays his love that he gave us through the cross. So we must get busy creating this kind of community by his word. As we grow in mature, this kind of maturity as a church, we look to the father and his intimate relationship with the son. And as we look upon that, him just like children in a home with a good marriage, we mature into that likeness. This helps us think about what we ought to be prioritizing as a church, both individually and corporately as a body. It helps us answer some really important questions that people have struggled with for a really long time. Like, 
Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Really? According to Jesus here, the chickens came first. God already had the community, and he brought into life offspring, who then he brought together as a community who create life. More common way that maybe this idea is debated in churches is more asking, should we be more inward focused or outward focused? Or do we just need to balance those two things? Well, I think what Jesus is telling us is that he first creates the fellowship and wants to shape it into an intimate display of his love. And through that love overflowing, it will become outward focused, an instrument of his mission. Jesus created compelling Christian community as the means for accomplishing his mission. So the more inward focused we are on Christ's glory, the more fruitful we will be outwardly. The problem is most inward focused churches are not focused on Christ, but their own desires and their own comforts. If a marriage is simply focused on its own immediate comforts, it will not do what it takes to grow up into a greater love that will overflow into fruitfulness. If each spouse just demanding their own way, they'll never come together to produce life beyond themselves. That's how we have this modern trend of double income, no kids. There's people delighting in being 35 years old and having all kinds of money and no children to pass it on to. God's design has always been, first comes love and marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. And then that baby witnesses the love in that marriage and grows up into that joy and that unity and that fellowship and then multiplies that in their own marriage. And similarly, spiritual new birth arises within the love of a compelling Christian community and then these, spirit, these children mature in that community to go out and multiply that same love. But we re must remember that this love is not ours. The unity is not our own. We, are, we want to display Christ to the world. In God's fellowship of love on display through us, Seeing God's glory, seeing Jesus is what transforms people. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, we beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. We want people to see how great Christ is. That's what will transform them. They are saved by encountering Jesus. And what Jesus incredibly is praying here in John 17 is that he now displays that glory through his compelling Christian communities. The world sees and hears and touches Jesus today through his unified, word-saturated people. He wants us to be so unified with him and one another that watching the watching world can hardly distinguish us as individuals because we're all working together as one unit captivated by that singular glory of Christ in our midst. So how are we going to create that kind of community? I'm just going to do what Christians have always done. 
First, Jesus' emphasis in this prayer is for our unity is that we would be in the word of the apostles. Each of us must saturate ourselves in the Bible. Its truth must become our mindset. Its story becomes our story. Its principles, our guiding light. Its wisdom, our thoughts. Its speech on our lips. And then we bring this word near to one another. The Christian life is not an individual journey, but meant to be a community project. We need to be in each other's lives more than just a couple of hours on Sunday morning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, Life Together, the Christ in my own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of my brother. He's simply acknowledging this greater truth that God designed for us to be in community. The Christ in my own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of my brother. It's the same Jesus, but I can read the Bible by myself, but it's not going to have the same effect in my life as if one of you brings it into my heart. I have blind spots. I have weaknesses, tendencies that will naturally make me unable to see what I need to see and apply what I need applied. But you don't have the same blind spots. You can come near me and draw me closer to God's glory with his word. So let's get building this compelling Christian community and multiply it. That's our mission strategy here at Redemption City Church. Even if the professional missiologists think we're foolish, it all starts right here on Sunday mornings. We gather to behold his resurrected glory. So let this time bond you together, not just with Jesus and his word, but Jesus and his word and the people right next to you. Listen to them as they sing these truths written up here for you to sing, not just to Jesus, but to your neighbors. Hear their voices after worship when they tell you what's going on in their lives and they need your prayer. Pray for them. Take this time to schedule further meetings like community groups. Gather with a community group each week to get personal with one another. There is where you can call each other out and confess sin, where you pray and build each other up, where you apply the word personally and display gospel unity and meals and celebrations together. There is where you connect with people who will show up at your house when your pipes freeze and help you fix your frozen pipes or where you struggle with parenting and you say, will you come over to my house this week and give me some principles for how you've done it? It's the overflow of what happens on Sunday morning. And finally, as we started this message, practice this work of unity just in your own home. God gives us marriage as this basic unity, unit of community to show us what love overflowing and multiplication looks like, to be a training ground for what the church is supposed to become, and to be an extension of the church into your neighborhoods. Saturate your marriage in the word. Like God's own triune nature, seek to bring delight to your spouse first above all things, and then that love will overflow to your children and open up your home and hospitality to let your neighbors see God's gospel love working from your church into your marriage out into this world. And through this compelling Christian community, we will advance Christ's glory mission one generation further. Let's pray.
God, this seems almost impossible, I think, at times. Like me and my wife and, and those marriages out there, and we're going to come together and we're going to fill the earth with your glory? How are we? It's like filling the ocean with a teaspoon. But God, you have been doing this for 2,000 years. And you will accomplish this generational faithfulness until the earth is full of your glory. So help us to be faithful with our little part in it. To love one another. To train up our children. To give birth to spiritual children in this neighborhood, in this city, in our, the places where we go and work. God, help us be faithful to proclaim and display the beautiful fellowship of our great God that is now ours because of the death and resurrection of King Jesus. Amen.